All right, picking back up in verse 15. Well, up to this point, we know that Jesus has risen from the grave. He has shown himself to be alive to many. And um, <clears throat> he's had interactions and conversations with his disciples, with uh, other followers. Uh, Jesus has not by in any means hidden his resurrection from anybody at that time. And um, uh, at the end of that period of time that Jesus was making himself uh, uh, or revealing himself to be alive and ministering and restoring and doing um, the work, finishing the work that God had sent him to do, he takes his disciples again up to the top of the Mount of Olives and he speaks to them in verse 15 and it says, And he, Jesus, said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and they will drink anything deadly, and it by no means hurt them. They will lay down Lay hands, they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoke to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. I think that's one of the most um, powerful statements right there. We'll look at it at the end of verse 19. And he sat down at the right hand of God, especially in light of um, this instruction and command that he left us with. And then in verse 20, they went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord working with them, and confirming the word through the accompanying signs, and Mark ends with amen. Yes, Lord, yes, amen. All right, this morning, I suppose this will be the technical conclusion of the Gospel of Mark. Um, in the next couple of weeks, they're going to have Pastor Curtis, before he goes on um, sabbatical, I've asked him to share a message with us on uh, the words that Jesus spoke while he was hanging on the cross. Uh, if you've ever done a study on that on your own, it's pretty profound. And we only touched a few as we were going through the end of the chapter last week and looking at the death and resurrection of Jesus. But <clears throat> I've asked Curtis to scour all the Gospels, connect all the dots, and he'll be doing a teaching for us next week on that. And then following that, um, just because I don't like the way that Mark ends without the restoration of Peter being told, I, I, don't, like to, I, I, I don't like Peter just kind of hanging in the wind there of having denied the Lord and Jesus saying, I'll go meet Peter in Galilee. Well, I want to hear the rest of that story, and I want you guys to hear it too. I know you know it, but I've asked Pastor Jeff the week after that to come and teach on the restoration of Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. So I'm looking forward to those two studies. And then, like I said, after that, we'll dive right into uh, the book of Hebrews, a book of betters. And so I'm looking forward to that. I hope you guys are as well. So as we finish, technically, the Gospel of Mark, I really wanted to, 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 to take the time here to really focus on this verse, verse 15, which records the last command, Jesus' last command to his disciples. And I believe it's very important to do so in light of the times that we're living in. Now think about the times that we're living in, right? And I believe it's, it's important to spend this time here today to focus 
on these things for really two reasons. The first is because the world, perhaps more than ever, at least by the way that I see it, is still in desperate need for us to proclaim the good news message of Jesus Christ to them, right? There's a need, I think probably greater than ever, at least in my lifetime, I see the need greater than ever for people to know and to surrender and to follow after Jesus. And, and, and God's given us this great privilege of telling them about him, to tell them about God's plan of salvation that comes by grace through faith in Jesus, first of all, so that they might hear. I mean, just a very simplistic understanding of things. The Bible even says it. How will they know if they do not hear? How will they hear if they don't have someone who will tell them? Well, where are those someones? And we let them know. They hear. And then, of course, that they might believe upon hearing and then be saved from the wrath that is soon to come before it is too late. And I think that moves us right into the second reason for why I think that the time that we're spending today looking at this command of Jesus is so important. And the second reason for why it's important in light of the times we're living in because Jesus, think about it, who has ascended, was received up into heaven, is coming back very soon. He's coming back very soon. And so what that means, you know, we started at the beginning of this year. Every year at the beginning of the year, we have a time where we meet together as a church on an evening. We have dessert together. The elders in the church address you and talk to you and share some of the things that God's put on their heart. I share the vision and the mission of the church, but also for this upcoming year. What does this year look like for us as a church? What do we want to take as a lens as looks through everything else that God is doing? And this year it was Jesus is coming soon. And I talked about at the beginning of the year what that means and practically what we should be focusing on and thinking about. Well, when we consider this command of Christ in light of the world that we're living in with this knowledge that Jesus is coming soon, we see the importance because if Jesus is coming soon, the simple truth of that is that there's not much time left. There's not much time left for us to tell people about Jesus. On one side of the coin, we have not much time left for us to be telling people about Jesus. But on the other side of the coin, we see that we as disciples of Jesus, when he comes back, we want to be found faithful doing what he's left us here to do. Do we not? I mean, one of the things that is in Christianity is we all say we long for that day when we stand before our Savior, he comes to take us home, or when we leave these physical bodies and go be in his presence, is that we long to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, we don't want to hear, well, you did pretty good. (laughs) Or, man, why didn't you do what I asked you to do? You know, not that this is a salvation issue, but it is a walking in the life that God has called us to walk. Honoring Him. Walking in obedience to Him. Submitting our lives to Him. And, and, And with that is this trust and this knowledge that what He has for us is better than what we could ever choose or plan for ourselves. And this is part of it today. I want to. I desire, and I hope, I hope that you do too, that when Jesus comes back, that you desire to, to be found faithful doing what you've been left here to do. Now, it's not by coincidence when we look at the gospel accounts, not just Mark, but all four of them. Now, all four of them end with this same instruction from the resurrected Jesus to his church for us to go out and preach the gospel message to all the ends of the earth. And I think that's significant that all four of the gospels have this same instruction. It's listed and, 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 and spoken in, in, in different ways, but it all records this event where Jesus addresses his disciples in one way or another, says, 
go out with this gospel message and make disciples of him. And here in Mark, it's in verse 15, right? Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then in John chapter 20, verse 21, is where we see the same word spoken in a different way by Jesus, where he said, peace to you. I love it that John just kind of gets to the point of what Jesus said. He condenses it. These are still the words of Christ. They're not John's. He says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. That's a mind-blowing thing when you think about it in the terms of the Great Commission that we read here in the other Gospel accounts. He said, he said, you've seen me. You've seen how I've done this. You've followed my example. And now what God has sent me to do that you have seen over these three and a half years, he says to his followers, do it this way. I'm also sending you to carry on with the work that I had been sent to do. And then in Luke chapter 24 is where we have this other account in Luke's Gospel, verses 46 through 48. And Luke writes and says the words of Jesus, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. So he's saying this is, you see this? He's saying just as it was preordained by God for the Christ to come and suffer. Look at the, the plane, the leveling, the, 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 how Jesus levels this. He elevates the commission to the, to the same importance of the resurrection and of the ascension and, and what the Christ was coming to do. He says, it, it, it was written, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, he said, you're the witnesses of these things. And then lastly, in the Matthew's account, I saved this for last because it perhaps is the most detailed version of it, where Matthew writes in 18, 28, verse 18, on through verse 20, he says, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And here we see that there's... there's there's many avenues that are brought into this one command, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we're to make disciples. How do we do so? Part, in part by, by baptizing them. And then in part, he says, by teaching them to observe the things that I have commanded you. And then he concludes with this reminder, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Amen. Now last week, we have to go back a little bit as we look at this to see the importance, I think, of, of the, 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 this great commission, this command. And last week we looked at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when we were doing that, I pointed out the reason for why it was important for us to know that Jesus showed himself to be alive after the tomb where his body had been laid was found to be empty. Right? It was important. To have an empty tomb and an alive Jesus. There is some theological importance, some doctrinal importance, but even for the sake of the gospel message, that's important. In fact, I pointed out how Paul had written to the early church in Corinth and told them that if Jesus had not been resurrected back to life, Paul said, then our faith would be worthless, right? We would be worthless, and we who have put our hope in Jesus would be without any real hope because we'd still be lost in our sin. Without the resurrection, there's, there's no true hope. We just have a dead Jesus. 
And the truth is, is the gospel message that we've been sent out with would not be good news. Hear this. The gospel message would not be good news without the visible and confirmed resurrection of Jesus. Imagine this. And maybe this is just me. Walk with me here for a second. This is what goes on in my mind. But you're telling someone that God sent his son Jesus to save them. You are out evangelizing. You are bearing witness to who Jesus is. And you're telling them about your Lord. You're telling them about your Savior. You have the gospel message in your hand, in your mind. And you're going forth and you're saying, man, God sent his son Jesus to save you. And in doing so, God's son, I tell you, he was born of a virgin. He did many miraculous things. He healed the blind. He caused the lame to walk. He cast out demons of many people. He even raised some people back to life. He walked on water, and the sea and the wind obeyed his command. He is God in the flesh. Yet, he came to die for us. I know this is where it gets a little complicated, a little hard to understand, but he died for us. He had come to die for us. In fact, he told his followers that this would happen. He said he would be betrayed, arrested, crucified, and in three days later, he'd be raised back to life. In fact, he told us that his resurrection, he said, my resurrection will be proof that I am God in the flesh who has the power over death and the authority to forgive our sins. He was without sin. He had no sin. He was innocent. He was undeserving of this death he was destined to, that he submitted himself to. But he freely offered up his life as a sacrificial offering for all of our sins. And he, with his sacrifice for us, paid the debt that we owed with his own life. And so Jesus was crucified. He was laid in a tomb. And three days later, after his, after his death, the tomb where he had been laid was found to be empty. That's a wonderful message. It's a powerful message. I say it's the greatest message that can ever be told. But if this was the whole message, think about it. If this was the whole message, would it not only leave the people we were talking with with many questions that we could not answer? This is where I go. You're telling me that story. I'm like, how do you know he's alive? How do you know he's alive? Did anyone see him? Did anyone talk with him? If he was not seen to be alive, then how do you know he's alive, huh? How do you know that he was God in the flesh? How do you know he was God in the flesh who had the power, power over death and the authority to forgive my sins? If that's all there was, if that was the story, those would be the questions. They would be unanswerable. But listen, our message is good news. Not only is it good news, the Bible says it's the power of God unto salvation. That's the truth. Why? Because we know the whole story. It does not end with just an empty tomb, for Jesus is alive, and he has shown himself to be alive to many. That's the story. That's the truth. Many talked with him, we're told. Many saw him. They ate food with him. And those who were eyewitnesses testified of this truth. History records it, not just the Bible. There were many eyewitnesses who testified of seeing him and remain faithful to that testimony even though it cost them their lives. They would not recount saying, I have seen Jesus alive. 
That's powerful. In fact, Jesus himself, after he was raised back to life, here's here's part of this message. After Jesus raised himself back to life, he left us this, this command. This is what we tell people. This is part of the gospel message. He left us this command to come and tell you and you and you about it. For us to go tell the world about it. To go into all the world and to preach this good news to every creature. And with this command, he said, very simply, all who will believe will be saved. And then standing on the, mount at the top of the Mount of Olives, he ascended, he was received into heaven, and then the disciples, as Mark states it here, went boldly preaching the good news everywhere, and this preaching continues and lives on today through us. Now before we begin to look into these words that Jesus spoke, because we're going to dissect it a little bit as it's accounted through all four of the Gospels, as he spoke this to his disciples, it's worth pointing out that these Words of Jesus are, that were spoken, it's a command, it's not a suggestion. And I know that seems a little obvious and maybe even redundant to speak it out, but we've got to start there. I know sometimes you guys driving down the highway, me too, look at the speed limit signs and you go, it's a suggestion. <laughs> a recommendation. We get messed up between commands and suggestions. I'm guilty. Try telling that to the officer. I thought it was a suggestion. Don't work. When Jesus comes back, he's, he's going to go, that is, was, it, was it a suggestion? No. A command. Let's just start there, please. And listen, there's a, a famous preacher, Harry Ironside. He preached in the late 1800s. He died in 1951. I love his, his, his teaching, his, his commentaries. Um, he's speaking, he spoke, he wrote about this last command of Jesus to his disciples, and he said this. Such a profound statement in just a very few words. He said this, Interest in missions is not an elective in God's university of grace. Interest in missions is not an elective in God's university of grace. It is something in which every disciple is expected to major in. But it's also important to understand that at the time that Jesus gave this command, and Jesus, Jesus turned the whole world upside down. And with this command, he did the same thing. Because with this command, you have to understand that the idea of a faith, any faith, that it should go out into the world, it was not part of the Jewish thinking in the days of Jesus at all. As a matter of fact, when you look at the, 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 the New Testament and the Old Testament, specifically Old Testament leading up to this event, I only see really one solid account of where God ever said or sent one of his prophets and said, go, tell them about me. And if you remember that prophet, Jonah, a prophet to Israel, who was faithful in his ministry to Israel, as far as we could tell, the minute God said, go to the Ninevites, Jonah said, nope, nope, I'm not going to do that. And, and here's his reasoning for it. He says, if I go them and tell them about you, and, and call them to repentance, he says, that's what they're going to do, and you're going to save them. And they're evil people, and I want them dead. This is, I'm paraphrasing it. And so he gets on a ship, he goes to Tarshish, the opposite direction, and, and you know the story, God gets him swallowed by a, by a whale, says, no, you're going. Spits him out on the shore, Jonah goes, fine, at this point, and he goes there, and then he, re, he, he, he tells him the message, and he, he sits outside the city, and he's pouting and moping, because because he didn't want him to be saved. 
So this, this idea is completely foreign. And even though the Hebrew people were to be a peculiar people, God's special chosen people, who were different than all the other people around them in, in every single way, and by this they were to bear witness to the one true Jehovah God, to all the Gentiles, it was only and always to those primarily who came seeking. Who came seeking. There was never the thought of going to the Gentile nations and taking Judaism to them. And for that same matter, at this time, it wasn't really part of the pagan way of thinking either. And so when Jesus spoke this command to go and make disciples of Him from all nations, understand, just like all the words of Jesus, it was completely revolutionary at the time. And even though Jesus gave this command Upon his ascension, we know from what we read in the book of Acts, even though Mark kind of gives us a different story here, Mark makes it seem like that the disciples saw Jesus ascend into heaven. They received the command, you know, and they sprinted down that mountain together and they went out into all of the nations and told everybody about Jesus and gave the good news message. That's not at all how it happened. As a matter of fact, when you look at the book of Acts, they did not immediately obey the early church. In fact, for many years, the disciples stayed in Jerusalem. They didn't even go out to the rest of the Hebrew people in Israel. And it was only when the church was experiencing harsh persecution, persecuted unto death, that they fled Jerusalem. They didn't say, oh, now's a good time to go and tell the gospel message. They were fleeing for their lives. And God happened to use that persecution for a good work to take the gospel message into all the world. But the gospel did spread. That's the point. And it continues to be spread today through us. It's important to look at this final command which Jesus has given to us from this mountaintop in Galilee in relationship to... Now, this, I think this does a wonderful thing for us. We must look at it in relationship to the resurrection it followed, the command to go into all the world. Look at it in relationship to the resurrection it followed and the ascension it preceded. The resurrection was a mighty work of God. The ascension with the promise of Jesus' return is a mighty work of God. But look what's sandwiched right in between this command to go into all the world. And we know that Jesus' ascension into heaven where He sat down, it says, right at the right hand of God, it took place about 40 days after the resurrection. A 40-day period of time where Jesus walked upon the earth, showed Himself to be alive. And when we are told in verse 19 that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, we should understand something very important. That this sitting down was a sign that Jesus had completed all the work that God had sent Him to do. He went home to His Father in heaven and He sat down. When we, get, when we get home from a long day of work, we want to put on our comfy clothes and we want to sit down. It's, we do that. We sit down because the work for the day is done. We're resting. It's finished. All the work had been done. Jesus went to sit down at the right hand of the Father. Now, He still works on our behalf. The, the language is figurative here, maybe even real, literal in the sense that what Jesus did. But for us, it's an image of the work being completed with this last act that Jesus had done. So in light of this, we understand that the very last thing that Jesus did to complete the work that he had been sent to do while he was here on this earth was to send his disciples out into the world with this command to be his witnesses. The last work. Those who would proclaim the truth of what they had been witnesses to. And it's important to point out as we see this that evangelism, as we begin to dissect the command, proclaiming the good news, telling people the good news, is not the whole command. In other words, 
In other words, Jesus did not command his followers saying that they should just go and make converts in their names. In his name, I mean. Now, there are evangelists, people who will, will evangelize, will share the gospel message, but that's only part of the, the, the command. In fact, he said, he said, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them in my name, and teach them to observe the things that I commanded you. In other words, simply put, the Great Commission is more than just making converts. The church is not in the business of making converts, so to speak if you will. A Christian's life isn't about just making converts. Why? Because after a person believes the gospel message, discipleship begins and people put their their faith in Jesus. We're told that that discipleship be a walking with. That's what discipleship literally is. And it begins at that point, hopefully with baptism. And there's some significance to that. And I want to talk about this just a little bit to see the reasons for why. And this is because baptism is an outward sign of the spiritual rebirth and the inward change that takes place when we believe. And so baptism is a public proclamation that we who have been born again and have received the newness of life are now followers of Jesus. We are now Christians, so to speak. And that when we put our faith in Jesus and accept Him and confess Him as our Lord and Savior, that the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of us. At that moment, the Bible says, and we've experienced that, those of us have put our faith in Jesus, right? We've experienced that at that moment, we who were spiritually dead became spiritually alive. And we became a new creation. I love this. New creations in Christ Jesus. Just like it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul writes and says, he says, the old things have passed away and all things are becoming new for us in Him. And baptism encompasses this. And baptism is an illustration of this new spiritual birth. Therefore, Jesus commanded us to baptize those who choose to become his disciples as part of the Great Commission. There's so much to this. And the reason for this is that this outward sign of the inward change is ultimately a declaration, an open, bold statement that the oneness and unity that we have is in Jesus. And so in one sense, baptism is a testimony to whoever whoever sees us baptizing someone or sees someone being baptized that we who were once against God are now together on His side. And baptism is this outward affirmation. I love this, that we become part of the family of God. And, And think about that, because as disciples of Jesus Christ who are called to fulfill the Great Commission, to first evangelize and disciple and baptize, what Jesus is literally telling to us as we look at this baptism being an aspect of it as an outward affirmation that we become part of God's family, it's like Jesus saying to the church, they've accepted me, bring them in. Here's your brother. Here's your sister. Bring them in. This is your family. And through Jesus, we become one body, one family. You know, we're all adopted in. I think about, I see these stories. A dear friend, Isaac and Hope Griffin, this last year got to adopt a son that they've been fostering. I didn't get to go. I wish I would have been able to go. I was out of town, but I saw in the courtroom. And I'm sure you guys have seen these these scenes in these courtrooms. 
where the judge makes the declaration, here's your mom and dad. You're welcomed in. You're accepted. And they got the technical paper, but it's a big deal. It's a new birth. It's an awesome, wonderful thing. That's what baptism is for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, where we go, welcome to the family. Come on in. You're part of us now. And it should be as important for us who are already a body of, part of the body of Christ to those who are putting their faith in saying that you're now one of us. It's an awesome thing of acceptance and oneness. We become one body, one family, a church. And the important thing for us to notice is that in that, that our fellowship is with one another and it is with one another and it's centered in on our common faith in Jesus In other words, think about this, our fellowship, our new fellowship, our fellowship now and going forward, our our unity now and going forward, our oneness now and going forward are built upon who we know. That is it. It's built upon who we know, not upon our common interests. Now, within the body of Christ, we may have people who we're more friends with or we we build a, a true friendship with. That's fine. That's okay. We may spend time with one with others more than we do with others, but that doesn't count the fact that we're a family. But our family and us being a family and us being one is primarily and wholly upon who we know, not upon our common interests. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28 tells us this for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Period. We are all one family through our faith. We're all sons and daughters of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Literally what that means because of the work that He's done. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Man, think about the things that divide us today. Let's please as a church, it's it's the political season. It is what it is, but can we as a church family be about what, be those who tell people what we're for and not what we're against? We can communicate the same message, but let's tell people what we're for and not what we're against. Here's a very, a very clear example. I'm not, I'm against Abortion. It's not a political thing, by the way. It's a, it's a God, Jesus, God, the Bible thing, just so you know. And I know you know that. But instead of telling people what I'm against, I tell them I'm for life. It's just, it's a very simple thing that we can rework the way that we think. And we need to do that within the body of Christ. We need to focus on what unites us instead of looking at these things that can so easily divide us that the enemy would use. May it not be so at Livingstone Calvary Chapel. And I pray by the grace and mercy of God that somehow the greater church within Canyon, we can, we can stop focusing and dwelling on these differences and remember that we are one in Christ. We are all baptized. We are all one in Christ. We have differences. We have different ideologies in regards to maybe even a, a, a world or political view or these things. You know what? God's going to work it out. If, you're, if your brother's wrong, you know, the Bible says go to him and work it out, but let him be wrong if he wants to be wrong. Have unity in Christ. Don't divide over those things. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 
12 to 13, it says this, Christ is like a single body. We get the imagery, right? Paul uses this a lot. One body, not many bodies, but one body that has many parts. It is still one body. And yeah, we're, we're, we're hands, we're feet, we're toes, we're fingers. You know, we're all these things as the body of Christ. It's made up of different parts. And in the same way, all of us, whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, whether we're slave or free, fill in the blank with maybe more applicable to our lives today, you know, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, we've all been baptized into one body by the same Spirit. We've all been baptized, again, into one body by the same Spirit, and we all have been given one Spirit to drink. So, the Great Commission, the Great Commission Jesus charges with before He ascended in heaven, we see that it's a manifold command, right? It is evangelism, it is discipleship and baptism, and it is also, as a part of discipleship, Teaching the Word so that people may observe and obey. I'm going to tell you this right now. I'm going to talk about this a little bit. I can't overemphasize this. I cannot overemphasize this. No matter what I say to you this morning, it will be underemphasizing the importance of this. And not that I'm trying to. It's just I I can't overemphasize it. Because the church today as a whole... And listen, I don't mean just the men who stand behind the pulpits. The church today today as a whole are not teachers of God's Word. The church as a whole, we are failing in being teachers of God's Word. By far the 21st century postmodern church, whatever you want that to mean nowadays, ultimately is ignorant of the Word of God. Both those who stand behind the pulpits and those who sit in the chairs. And this is due to the fact that there's, I think, within the church today, and guys, I think we used to just say, oh, this is in America. It's not. It's worldwide. I've been everywhere. It's not. It's bad and it's, hard. it's worse in other places. But in the world today, the church as a whole has put an, un- an ungodly emphasis and focus on the church entertaining and the congregants wanting to be entertained. And many are judging whether their Sunday service, their weekly spiritual encounter, whether it was good or bad, and they're based it upon how they were made to feel. And in instead of being concerned about the content of the message, it's how well the speaker was able to deliver the message. And I thank God, I know that's no reason, that's why you, none of you use that as a reason to be here. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm speaking in tongues and God gives you guys the gift of interpretation because I just don't come out. But, but, but they can be concerned. We can be concerned about the, rather than the content of the message, but about how well the speaker delivered it. It's become more important. And the sad thing with all of this, here's why it's important. Here's why it's so significant. Listen, without the teaching of the Word of God, without the teaching of the Word of God, we do not know how to live as disciples of Jesus. Without the teaching of the Word of God, we don't know how to live as disciples of Jesus. Listen, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then the psalmist in 119, Psalm 119, verse 105, he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. With that in mind, consequently, because the church is not being taught the Word of God, Because the church is not being taught God's Word. 
because the church is not reading God's Word, because the church is not studying God's Word for themselves, the result of that is spiritual weakness. Vulnerability. Vulnerability to the trickeries and lies and temptations of Satan who is looking to devour us, to devour the church, to devour the followers of God. And not only, not only this, but the church, think about it, the church without the Word of God is not equipped to carry out the good work. Without the work of God, with, without the Word of God, without the knowledge of the Word of God, without studying the Word of God, in addition to being vulnerable, in addition to being spiritually weak, we are not equipped to carry out the good work as Christ has called us to of evangelizing, of discipling, of baptizing, and teaching. And, and for that matter, I'll just say for any other good work that God has called us to. Here's what I mean. Scripture defines this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16-17. and through 17. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The, the, the word there in the, Hebrew, in the Greek is, it means God breathe, pneumos. It's literally God breathe. It's profitable. He says the Word of God is, is the, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable because it comes from God for doctrine. It's for teaching for reproof, that's a, that's a rebuke. For correction, we know what that is. So, and, and also for instruction in righteousness. It, it instructs us in the right way to go. What, what ways is this? Every way. You want to know how to do your marriage? Go to God's Word. You want to know how to raise your kids? Go to God's Word. You want to know how to spend your money? Go to God's Word. Fill in the blank. Those are just three of the big, right? Go to God's Word. He instructs us on in the way of righteousness. Why all these things is profitable for all these things so that the man of God may be equipped, or excuse me, may be complete and thoroughly equipped, the Bible says, for every good work. Every good work. Without the Word of God, we are not equipped for the good works. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit, but equipped to carry it out. Bottom line is this, that any pastor or church that fails to teach people the whole counsel of god's word is not obeying the commands plural of the great commission the apostle paul knew this the apostle paul knew this and on his very last missionary journey as he was heading back to jerusalem he called for the ephesian elders to come to him they were in ephesus he was taking a different route he was in asia minor he's at the port city of miletus and he said send them to me People believe that Paul was in Ephesus for about three years with the church, teaching, training them, instructing them, pastoring them. And then he left them. And he said, as he knew it was the end, he called them to them because he wanted to give them some final instructions. Very important. <coughs> and a warning. And it's in Acts chapter 20 where we read this. Verses 25 through 29. And it's amazing to me that out of all the things that Paul could have said to these guys, knowing that it would be the last time that he would see them, that he put the emphasis on these things. Listen, he says, he says indeed now, verse 25, indeed now I know that, that you all, among from whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. He says, this is it, guys. 
It's kind of like, pay attention. I'm not, we're not going to get a chance to talk again. He says, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? He says, because I've not shunned, I've not turned away from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. All of God's Word. He says, I've told you. I've made it known to you. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He says, this is my example. This is what I've done. You are now in a position of leadership. He said, take heed to those who you are over now that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He says to the shepherd, you being the shepherd, the church of God, which God has purchased with his own blood. Think about the powerful statement there. He said, by the way, guys, look at what you've been put in charge of. You, th- you, think, you think God doesn't take this seriously? He purchased what he's put you in charge of with his own blood. That should just make you stop and pause. It's like, wow. That's a pretty valuable thing from God's perspective that he's entrusted us with. And Paul says this, for this I know, he says, be aware, take heed. He, he points them to teaching the whole counsel of the word of God because he says that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And I love that imagery because when you watch the Nature Channel or something like that, that uh, pops up maybe on your social media, you see the lions or the other predators circling the herds of the, 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 <laughs> the poor little helpless antelopes or whatever, you know. And, and the lion doesn't go for the biggest and strongest in the middle of the pack. It's always the one who is on the edge, the weak, the one that's got an illness, the one that's got an injury, the one that's vulnerable. They get picked off. And strength is found in the Word of God. One other thing that's important to notice when we look at Jesus' command to go into, this, this, go into the world, um, this instruction, and we're wrapping it up here, so I want to I wanna kind of get to the the heart of some of this. In the Greek, when we look at this command, both here in verse 15, where it's the word go is there, the same Greek word is used in Matthew's account when Matthew also says go, alongside that instruction, right, that Jesus said go. In the Greek, that is, this word is used as a participle. It's, what it means is a verb adjective. In other words, Jesus is literally telling his disciples to evangelize, to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach. Here's the more appropriate word in the translation as they were going about their everyday tasks of life. Meaning, the Great Commission is more than a command to do. It's an instruction on how to live. Think about that. Put that in your mind. It's, it's an instruction on how we are to live. Yes, it's a command, but it's a, it's a way of life. And we as his disciples are to be keeping this command to evangelize, to, to make disciples, to baptize, to teach as we are going about our everyday, everyday lives. This is further, it's a further illustration that points out the fact, I love this, that Christianity is not something we do. It's who we are. It's who we are. And, and the Great Commission isn't just something that we go do. It is who we are. We are those who are witnesses we are witnesses, and we bear testimony through our witness. Before we conclude, yes, I want to leave you with two points of thought from this command or these words that Jesus spoke that are, are important. And they basically come from Matthew 28. 
uh, where we read the detailed part of it. They're encouragements, and I don't want us to miss the encouragements in the midst of the commands, because Jesus began it with an encouragement, and he ended it with an encouragement. And the first encouragement that he gave his disciples, he told them, he prefaced this command, this instruction, this call to this way of life, and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. In other words, Jesus was telling his disciples, that as they went out as his witnesses, they had nothing to fear. Why? Because he is in charge of all things in heaven and here on earth. And what does that mean? Everything is in subjection to him. And that he was on their side. He was for them and God was for them. So then who could stand against them? Right? The Apostle John writes about this in one of his epistles to the early church in chapter Four of First John, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Talking about, you know, going out and, and, and being witnesses and, 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 and what we're called to do and, and what's going on. He said, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. In that, every spirit confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. It's the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard about. And I've heard is coming and is already now in the world. He says, you are of God, right? That's when we think about the Antichrist. Ooh, the Antichrist. You know, we know how to identify him, but we don't need to be afraid of him. Why? Because he says, you are of God. And I love what John writes here. He says, little children, you are of God. And it's this idea of he being a father, which he is, and we being a child, which we are, but also speaks of that father love, that father's protection for his children. You are of God, little children. You have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he in the world. Here's what I want to tell you. The power, the gospel message is the power of God unto salvation still today. There's nothing greater. There is no force. There is no word. There is no person that can stand against it. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. The second thing to notice, the worship team wants to come up in this great commission of Jesus, is that Jesus ends by saying this, I'm with you always. Isn't that not comforting? Wherever you go, wherever I send you, Jesus says, I am with you always. With you always. I'm in charge of everything and I'm with you always. And this points out the fact that he's not leaving us alone to complete the task. That he'll see us through to the end of the age until he comes to take us to be with him. Simply put, Jesus is in charge and he stands by our side wherever we go. And we must not forget and live like Jesus is not coming back. but to be mindful during our waiting so that we are about our Father's business as we go. Let us go. Father, I know that you've sent us. We know what this means. And I think at the heart of it, Lord, the thing that we struggle with is the same struggle that we all have. We're, we're conflicted by our own want, our own will what we want to do in this life and it takes often a second what you want and and what you've sent us to do and call us to do takes a second or third seat lord but there is nothing greater for us to do in this life but to honor you with what you've asked us and called us to do 
And Lord, so whatever fears might be standing in the way or have stood in the way, whatever reservations that we've had, maybe we've experienced discouragement and, and um, defeat in the past, Lord, I pray that those things would no longer hold us back. It would hold us captive in, in, in the future and going forward. Lord, that we would remember that you have all authority, that you are with us, and that you've called us to this, and that truly, even still today in this dark world that we live in, that um, the gospel message and how it has affected us and changed us and made us new is still the message that saves people today, for there is no other name but the name of Jesus by which people can be saved. Lord, help us to be witnesses. Help us to see the importance of this. And Lord, um, help us to remember that this is who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand?